Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, my friends are gone and my hair is grey. I ache in the places where I used to play And I'm crazy for love But I'm not coming on I'm just paying my rent every day In the Tower of Song I said to Hank Williams Here we are. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Radical Australia. Sometimes we get guests from overseas on Radical Australia. That's pretty radical, isn't it, Dale? Indeed. I'm pleased to see you back. Andy really didn't cut it. Oh, really? I'm no, no, he's that. too pleasant and too polite, unlike you. No, forthright. I really appreciate his help. Yeah, yeah, you haven't been well, which is it's good to see you back. I'm um, really pleased. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, but, yeah. Mm. All right, that's the, uh, <laughs> the niceties over. <laughs> now we have a special guest all the way from some other planet, Nancy Cato. How are you, Nancy? Fine, it's great to be here. Thank you. Can I ask you who's spelling your name? K-A-T-O. So K-A-T-O. Yeah, we so all, we'd all think C-A-T-O. Exactly, so. yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now we only ask two questions on the show. Mm-hmm. And as you was telling me before the show that... Uh, you used to play musical instrument, but you didn't bring your French horn, so there'll be no relief for you. <laughs> we asked two questions. One, just to orientate listeners, and two, to get things started. So the first question is, what year were you born? 1959. 59. So you're a relatively youngster compared to me. A real youngster, a bit old compared to Dale, but yes, a exactly, compared to yeah. me. And the second question, which you've got 54 and a half minutes to answer, <laughs> is not some ideological <laughs> twister. Simple question. What's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? Let's see. Hmm, that's, a, that's actually a stumper. Uh, I remember my brother being born. He's mm. like three years younger than me. Mm. And I remember going to my first day of school when the little boy next door, who we were the same age, when his mother dropped him off, he just kept crying and crying and crying and I just remember staring at him and trying to figure out why was he crying because I was so excited to like uh, your first day of school. You know, right. it was like a, an exciting experience, and yet uh, mm-hmm. obviously it was traumatic for some so, other people. So, about your brother being born, was it a home birth or was it a hospital birth? Hospital birth. And they just brought this little bundle home. They did, yes. And you and you remember that? Yes. Right. yes. Have you got any other brothers and sisters? I have an older sister, right. so I'm the middle child. child. Yeah, yeah. Right, and. Um, are your parents? They wouldn't still be alive, would they? No, they. Yeah. My mom just actually passed a couple of years ago. Right. So. so, what type of person was your mum? She was pretty cool, actually, for as far as moms go, for sure. Oh, that doesn't tell me much. Well, she. <laughs> okay, let's just put it this way. Uh, she was an unusual Japanese American woman mm. in that she was. Uh, more civically engaged. Um, she wasn't just your housewife kind mm-hmm. of person. Um, she was involved in union work. She was actually part of a uh, lawsuit. She was a secretary. So the secretary's tr- um, t- 
teachers got extra um, money if they took continuing education classes. Mm-hmm. So she was part of a lawsuit that allowed that to be for, for staff people to be able to, if they took some classes, they could get more money, you know, mm-hmm. because they're continuing their education. She's also highly involved in the Buddhist church, which I grew up in. Um, not so much for religious reasons, but more so because it was the community, because Japanese Americans, even in the Bay, in the San Francisco Bay Area, were certainly a minority. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. so my mom, um, so she got us involved in community work, um, got us to go volunteer and do things. Um, we also, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area where the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. was uh, formed, and so she followed them. Uh-huh. So. We would, you know, she'd buy their newspaper and leave it around for us to read. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate mm-hmm. that I got, yeah. uh, you know, introduced to, yeah. you know, other ideas. Was and, she born in the United States? Yes, she was. Yeah. And uh, her mum? Her mom her was parents? born. Yeah, yeah, they were born in Japan, so they right. came over. They came over. So yeah. what would that be, what, the late 18th, yeah, 19th yeah. century? Something? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. All right. And Dad, what was he like? Dad was uh, what I would say is a typical Japanese-American Guy, what, what <laughs> which means mean? I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> it's like it's not football and beer. No, <laughs> no, actually, well, kind of, a little bit, yeah. No, just you know, kind of quiet. Mm. Um, you know, raised our family, went to work, wasn't wasn't a big talker, mm-hmm. you know. But mm. I do think that he instilled in us, um, you know, some important lessons. I remember um, one time, basketball was a very big thing in the mm. Japanese American community, mm. and uh, you know, he he hung up a hoop at our house, and I remember he was uh, teaching me to shoot free throws. And I remember being very frustrated, saying, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he actually got mad at me and says, never say can't. And I remember that being very just, one, is because he hardly ever said anything, but when he did, and also kind of in that emphatic Mm. way, Mm. it really, you know, impressed upon me, like, oh, okay, Mm. I guess I'm not supposed to say I can't do things. Right. And and was he born in in the United States? Yes, he was. And did you speak uh, Japanese at home? Or? They spoke Japanese when they didn't want the kids to understand what they Just were saying. Just like my family. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They didn't speak Japanese. No, but, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know that they were talking about you when it yeah. wasn't in yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were they interned during the Second World War? Yes, yes. Mm. So my parents, my grandparents. Your grandparents too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that was... Again, one of those moments in history where um, I think people obviously had a really difficult time with it because I can't imagine just boopy, boopy, boop, going down, you know, living your everyday life. And then suddenly the government says, you're all a bunch of criminals. You're all a bunch of threat to the United States of America Mm. when I'm sure 99% Point yeah. nine percent never did anything yeah. except you know go to work and raise their kids. Well, you won't believe this. We've got a similar background. A lot of Italians were interned here during the Second World War, and mm-hmm. my uncles were interned during the Second World okay. War only for about a year, and then they realised that they actually were productive members of the community, growing stuff, and yeah. they let them out. Did that happen to your parents, or were they interned for the whole war? They were interned for pretty much the whole war. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, about agriculture, so mm. a lot of the Japanese were involved in farming. And as they became more, they always got the, you know, crap pieces of land and they figured out how to, you know, farm it. Mm. And uh, 
have productive land. So that became a growing threat to the, you know, the California growers. And mm. they were more, I mean, it's not the, the sole reason, obviously, no. why they were interned, but there was this added benefit of getting mm. rid of the Japanese-American competition. So what, how did that affect your parents? It's interesting because I think they would always say things like, oh, we met them when we were in camp. Right. But it was said in a way that you didn't, I never understood it as a child to be like a bad thing. It was more just kind of a reference point for them. And then, um, so I never understood until I went to, um, there was an Asian American summer school they were teaching. This is sort of a precursor to my going to college and majoring in um, Asian American ethnic studies. So I never understood it to be a really horrible thing. And I actually never thought to delve deeper because it was kind of a matter-of-fact comment yeah, that they just, made. just went to camp and did a bit of camping and canoeing. Yeah, and, yeah I mean, yeah. and that's <laughs> not even that much detail. But again, but you never, we never got that sense that there was like... Right, so they, know, they, didn't, a, they didn't put that burden on you. No, they didn't. And the children. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's excellent. So you said your first day at primary school, you were rearing to go... Where did you go to primary school? Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood. In, in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, back so it was in the a public day. school. Was public it? school. Yes. Yeah. And what was that like for a young girl? Uh, it was a lot of fun, actually. I think mm-hmm. um, learning things. I think I enjoyed. I think running around and playing with different kids because you had your neighborhood, you know, people you hung out with. But when we went to school, there was other more kids that mm-hmm. you could play with and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learn different things. Mm. I remember getting milk for snacks and little cartons and, yes, you know. Uh, well, yeah, Dale exactly. does it, but we Right, exactly. Sour crackers. milk. Oh, in our, Queensland, oh. it was different. You know. It's always <laughs> sour milk. It's 30, 40 degrees that you get it. Yeah, I remember that. I can that still, would turn I can, me off. I milk. can still taste it. <laughs> if I vomit, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> just in your head. Yeah. It just brings those memories. Please, Dave. So did you excel at anything at primary school? Uh, I think that, yeah, I think I was a good student, but I don't think that I thought I was smart. Mm -hmm. I just thought everything was easy. Mm -hmm. It was interesting, though, when I was, um, Asians are supposed to be good in math. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. (laughs) But they still, it doesn't even matter. So I remember, Uh, you know, it's like you're Asian, therefore you're you're good good in math. math, And therefore you're going to be in the higher advanced math class, Mm -hmm. which I flunked, which was, yeah. yeah. Well, I probably didn't exactly flunk it, but I didn't do well. So I had to repeat it. So So what do they have in America? Is it a high school you go to? What do you go to after? Yeah, high school, yeah. And and again in the local area? Yeah. Yeah. Public school? Public, yes. And what was that like? Uh, this would be what the sixties, would it? The late sixties, seventies, seventies, yeah, seventies, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, it was. Um, we had one high school in our town, so you got to meet. What, all, was, what was the town again? It's called Albany, California. Albany, California, yeah, it's okay. right next to Berkeley, California. Right, but right. it could not be so. It was very it's a different. different world. It yeah. was a completely different world. So yeah. we we thought. Um, Berkeley High was all the sophisticated and really cool kids. Right. We were just the sort of, we felt like very rural and, you know, right. kind of like, you know, unsophisticated. Right. Yeah. Right. So we had a complex, so yeah. we, everybody wanted to be. Go to Berkeley. Yeah, exactly. It's the same here in Australia yeah. in the six, late 60s. We all wanted to go to Berkeley. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> I never got there. I assume you got there at some yeah. stage. So you finished high school. Yes. And how did you go at high school? Did you have options after you finished, or did you have to go to work? 
No, we had options. Well, there are options, but in my family, you had to go to a good university. So we have what is called like um, community colleges, which is like sort of a stepping stone to university. Um, That wasn't an option in my family. We had to go to university. It had to be a good university. So, you know, it was either for me, UC Berkeley or Stanford. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get into Stanford, which is probably just as well because that's a private school. But I did get into Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So back in the days when you could walk away with no student debt whatsoever. So there were no, there was no fees at that stage. There were they were they were low, you know, and they gave you financial aid and grants, right. so it's it really didn't cost my parents Much. anything. Right. Know. So what what did you decide you wanted to do? Well, when I went to college, I think initially I wanted to be a teacher, like a high school teacher. And then I got interested in activism. Excuse me. Did you just use the A word in this studio? Activism. Activism. What got you interested in activism? I mean, you'd only be, what, 18, 19? Yeah, but I was like an activist since I was like. You mean your mother, all that stuff that your mother made you do? Yeah, yeah. Kind of rubbed off, did it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, big time. (laughs) Big time. All right. So, what type of activist things would you do at Berkeley? Oh, tons, actually, yeah. Well, give us a few examples. Okay, so um, when I got there. There was actually a big fight within the Asian American Studies Department where three of the professors were up for tenure, um, and they decided that the only way they were going to get tenure is if they um, uh, changed the mission of the of the school mm-hmm. or, or, or the department. So instead of being community-based, instead of being student-based, they decided they were going to try and be more respectable in mm-hmm. the eyes of the administration. So what they did is they cut like the community language courses. They used to have a lot of um, lecturers coming in from the community who Mm -hmm. did not have, you know, PhDs, but they had PhDs in life and experience. experience. So they said, oh, you're not qualified anymore. So the year before I got there, there was some things brewing where they were firing people. My sister was at Berkeley the year before I was. She started a year earlier. And so I just started getting involved in um, trying to keep the, you know, the maintain the goals of um, of Asian American studies, which was to be community based, which was to be student have input into decision makings, which was, you know, we had a relationship with the community. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't as much of, you know, the traditional, you know, ivory tower hierarchy. Um, students were highly involved. And we did a lot of things like um, call out the head of the department, force him to hold a community meeting in San Francisco Chinatown to explain why all these changes were being made. We boycotted classes. Uh, we um, wrote letters to the administration. And we it was basically a battle over what will Asian American studies be? Will it continue to be on the road? And what happened? Yeah. Well, they ended up all getting tenure, (laughs) (laughs) but we did, it was a good battle. It was a good battle. We staved off some things. Mm. Um, I have made lifelong uh, friendships with people, um, lifelong uh, friendships isn't quite the right word, but just solidarity. You see people now 30, 35 years later, and there's something you can talk about because you went through something together. So how long did you last at the at the uh, 
at studying there? Five years. Five years. So yeah. you finished something? Did you get a degree or something? Uh, interestingly enough, this is an interesting story. So uh, I left after five years mm. because I was kind of done with things. I had... What, what, they were done with you or you were done with them? Both. Both, uh, <laughs> I had um, what we call, I, I don't know what they call it here, but if you don't finish your work, you have something called an incomplete and you have a mm. year to finish it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so anyway, a year went by and right. they didn't and finish it. Right. So, uh, you know, I had a job. I was like, I had a job. So yeah, during the, this period, you, you were working, were you? Yes, I was. I was working actually in Asian American studies. But once I, I got out of school, then mm. I got a job actually on campus. So, what I realized, you know, when my father, well, before my father died, but I realized, okay, it's stupid not to get a degree because, you know, I had so much invested in it. And, you know, the people who, you know, I was trying to say, screw you two, they mm -hmm. could care less I didn't have a degree because right? no, no, they're no, like, no. who, whatever. Who should? Exactly. Yeah. And so the reason why it took me so long to go back to get my degree is one is I didn't want to tell my parents that. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is that whole child parent this, this thing. This is the old Japanese thing. Exactly. Is you go to work when you've lost your job. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so 19 years later, yeah. and I just decided, okay, this is ridiculous. Right. And then come to find out that one is I actually only had to take two classes. I thought I had to take like four, and I'm right. like, oh, that's just right. way too much. And then, um, yeah, so I ended up getting told my parents, and yes, yes. they were like, my mother's like, what about your sister? Like, no, don't worry. She got her degree. She, she of all people, got her degree when she said she did as I'm the, yeah. you know, the middle child, the black sheep of the family. And then my father just said, well, good that you're finishing what you started. So what was the degree? It was a Bachelor of Arts right. in uh, right. Ethnic Studies. From... Yeah, what, what happened in those intervening 19 years? I was working. Doing being... what? Doing what? I worked as uh, a, an administrative assistant. I mm -hmm. worked as... That's pretty much what I was doing. Yes, I worked at an office. I worked at, at, at the UC Berkeley campus, actually, right. at a job mm. there. So mm. I was working as an editor of a law journal, actually, for a large part of time, too. So, A law journal? Yeah. What was that like? It was um, incredibly boring, actually. <laughs> but I had a lot of flexibility right. with my job, so yeah. that's what kept me there. Yeah, so it's a long time to be doing boring, uninspiring work, 19 years. Were you doing anything else during this period? Yes, I was. I was, I was an activist. An activist, There's a that professional activist. Were you, I was. You weren't getting paid, were you? No. Well, then not you're not an activist. Not monetarily. You're not yeah. professional. You're not professional. No, 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 no. I know. You're an amateur like the rest of us. <laughs> amateur only in the not getting paid. paid. Yeah. Yeah. Professional well, in the, the quality so of the work we do. Yes. yes. So what were you doing? Tell us some of the interesting bits and pieces. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, fighting for, you know, uh, abortion rights, even mm -hmm. though we supposedly have it. Clinic defense. That was a big thing, defending clinics. So what was happening that you had to defend the clinics? Well, the right wing were going to clinics, much like here, and mm -hmm. harassing women trying to get basic services. They weren't always trying to get an abortion, right. actually, yeah. probably, you know, 80% mm -hmm. weren't, mm -hmm. but they were going to do that clinic, right? Mm -hmm. So literally, not only escorting women in, but also doing something. We, in the United States, um, the, the group I helped form is a coalition called Bay Area Coalition for Our Reproductive Rights. And we sort of um, initiated, created this idea of clinic defense, which was not just to get women into the clinic, and that was it, but really as a 
um, also to understand that we wanted to outnumber, outmaneuver the right wing, which would sometimes come in large numbers, Mm -hmm. and defeat them and demoralize them so they wouldn't come back. Mm -hmm. So our first name of our coalition was called Bay Area Coalition um, Against Operation Rescue. And Operation Rescue was the sort of, you know, religious, right? And then because we defeated them, Mm -hmm. we changed our name. To what? (laughs) To Barrier Coalition for our reproductive rights. Right. So we got to be more the positive as opposed to we're against mm. something. So I know it's a lot of work, but were you doing other things during this period? Uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> it's a long time ago. Uh, anti-fascist. Well, not... Anti-fascist work. There was, what, uh, in the 80s? Yeah, late 80s. They were what coming. was happening? Uh, the fascists were calling an Aryan Woodstock. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'd we, be, I'd be worried about the talent base. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. There, there wasn't any, but I guess they felt that the, you know yeah. that was going to attract a lot of young people. Yeah. So that was out just outside of uh, of San Francisco, and so we went to the communities um, around surrounding. It was going to be on some guy's like ranch or something, yeah, yeah. right? So we went to the different communities and worked with um, people in those communities. I think we had the you know, the black sort of community group there. We had the feminists, we had a Jewish group just, and so we, we formed a united front against the fascists and what was good about it. The outcome was that, uh, a couple thousand of us, a thousand police in like six, maybe five, five (laughs) Nazi skinheads. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and they were the performers, I see. Yeah. (laughs) Because they probably were going to get paid. (laughs) It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so, so why that. why is this 19 years? What happened after 19 years of activism and boring, repetitive work? No, it's like it was work. The paid work was boring and repetitive, but being on campus wasn't. Uh, uh, being in a union and doing union activism because I had a job that was unionized mm, wasn't. Mm. So, no, I, I don't mean to did paint you, it as a... No, yeah. did you take any role in the union, active role in the union? Uh, yeah, uh, mostly pushing the labor bureaucrats to uh, really stand up for, you know, the, the rank-and-file members. So uh, one year I was laid off, and they created a special rule just for me. Oh, so I wonderful. had said, yes, I said, I would like to still be, you know, be mm. a union member. Mm. I will, you know, pay mm. dues out of my pocket. I'm mm. happy to do that. And the university gave me two years to find a job. The union gave me one year to be a member, you know, as a sort of outside, not having a job on campus. So I'm happy to say on the 12th month, I found a job and was more than happy to let them know that I had, I'm back on campus. And back in the union. (laughs) That's right. All right. So this, so what happened when you left campus? You grew up and you left. Uh, I actually didn't exactly leave since I had a job there. um, You didn't leave. I didn't leave. I left. No, I didn't leave. So, so nineteen years. You didn't leave after nineteen years. No, no, no. no. I, it was nineteen years since I got my degree. Great. So All 19, right. Yeah. So, but meanwhile, I was still working there. Still working. How yeah. long? Did you, how long did that last? Years. I was there. Let's see. <laughs> 1982 to 19, 2012. So, but I had different jobs. Yeah, different jobs. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't horribly boring. Well, I've only had one job all my life, so, you know, I can understand. Yeah, it's also, you know. Yeah, I've been doing the same job for 41 years. so. (laughs) So, So, what type of things were you doing? 
Uh, at work or just in initially the at work, and then we'll move on to okay. more interesting things. So there was the law journal that I was the mm-hmm. managing editor of, mm-hmm. and that it was a comparative law journal, which made it somewhat interesting. But um, because I'm not trained in law, and they were doing some very pretty esoteric and things I just didn't understand. It be that was what made it boring because right. I'm not really editing. Mm-hmm. I'm mostly checking footnotes and right. sites and stuff. Um, every once in a while we had an interesting um, sort of few articles. There was something on um, Roma Gypsy Law, which was interesting, you know, mm. so I actually learned mm. a, a few mm. things. But, yeah, but like mm. I say, I liked, I kept that job because, you know, it allowed me to... to be flexible. Exactly. Yeah. Do the other things you exactly. wanted to do. Yeah. On, on company time. On yeah. company time. No, no, no. Nobody's listening to this. Don't no, worry. Exactly. And, and she's retired anyway. Don't worry about <laughs> no, it. I'm well, not, not, not a retired <laughs> activist, but a retired... No, I'm not retired yet. Oh, God. But now I'm on a different University of different California uni- campus. Another different... <laughs> yes. Any, any highlights about your uh, stay there as a uh, worker at Berkeley? Oh, yes. Plenty of like, you know... Any, any you'd like to share? Yes, I would love to. Let's see. Uh, in 2009 was when the sort of, you know, wave around budget cuts and tuition rises, which I know you guys are seeing here with the, mm. you know, the, the budget coming out. What is it next week or something? But, um, you know, massive resistance. Actually, a lot of it started at the UC Berkeley campus. Um, so I was part of a coalition of students and staff and a little bit of faculty, not as much faculty, mm. that we, you know, formed a coalition. We called ourselves SWAT, the Student, SWAT. The student <laughs> Worker Action Team. Sounds good. Yeah. Now they'd and, be worried. The SWAT's coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we did a lot of, you know, public education. We helped organize mm. some demonstrations. And, mm. um, you know, I got to speak at a lot of them in terms of, um, you know, being, well, frankly, being a radical. Not that mm. they... Yeah. In the United States, they don't really care for radicals as much. I mean, no. the powers that be, needless yeah. to say. Especially but... three radicals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, going back to the students, Berkeley, have you noticed any major changes in, in, their, in their attitudes and what they're interested in and what they're what's happening is there been any cultural changes yeah a lot yeah because college now is so difficult and so expensive berkeley as the um premier campus of the whole university of california system it plays off its reputation as being the birthplace of the free speech movement Mm -hmm. and all the activism and you know the one of the um, cafes on campus, they named it the Free Speech Cafe. Cafe. So nice, it's yeah. all the kind yeah. of, you know, outer exterior things mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. get people to think, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, Hollywood activism. Exactly, yeah. 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 But it's, for a long time now, has been, you know, the more conservative students are coming. Also, they're more concerned about grades. They're more concerned about getting in, about finishing, about getting letters of recommendation so they can go on to other places. So, um, you know, the the student activism has really diminished over time because of Mm. who's who they're allowing in. Mm. You know, you'll see more activism perhaps on some of the other University of California campuses because they're more like, you know, yeah. working class kids. They're more concerned, you know. About things. Yeah, yeah look, the, the big change, because I, I went through university in the early 70s, and the big change, I think what really broke the back of student activism was continuous assessment. Because in the past, 
you could kind of fiddle around for a year. You'd mm-hmm. end of year exam, you'd swat up and, you know, you'd right. pass. You didn't have to do much. So you had a lot of free time mm-hmm. to go to the, you know, to go to the, you know, the student union, to go to the cafe, to get involved in demonstrations. And it didn't really affect your marks at the end of, mm-hmm. end of the year, as long as you did a bit of study along the way. Right. But in Australian universities, once continuous assessment came in that you had to do these things month, day after day, you'd have to hand in assignments, do exams. It just broke that momentum, and it was a brilliant ploy, I, yeah. I felt. Did they have continuous assessment in the States, or was it just once a year? I think it's, yeah, my understanding is, again, it's been so long, mm. Uh it's not continuous, but like I work for a law school. Well, I've worked for law schools. I work for a law school now, and what they're kind of looking at now, something maybe they haven't implemented it, yeah. but this whole thing of realizing we don't want to just wait till, you know, the final exam at the end of the semester to yeah. have let people know where they're at and yeah. come to yeah. find out they don't know enough, mm. right? Because everything now is. Well, that's what they said. They said this is going to be good, but it was actually, yeah. it, was, it was the death knell of student exactly. activism yeah. because you were just. You just couldn't. It's like your job, which you, you had flexibility. So exactly. as a student in the seventies, you had flexibility. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, in 1971, we had a, a day of rage in Canberra, mm-hmm. and you had over 30,000 university students from around the country converged on Canberra for a whole week. Wow! You know, and uh, you wouldn't be able to do that now mm-hmm. because everybody's swatting or doing something. So getting back to you, what type of activist projects you most proud of? I would say the anti-fascist work mm-hmm. because it's such an intense situation and the it's and it's so serious and people understand the seriousness and the threat of fascism and to be able to channel that energy and channel those concerns to bring people together mm. um, to take a stand, you know, I think is, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it makes me feel like we've accomplished something. We've, we've given people confidence that they can stand up to the fascists and that we, you know, can work together and that we need to work together. Mm. Um, uh, what, what? What threat do they pose in the United States today? They're there, and they're showing their ugly heads with, mm. you know, obviously the election of Trump. But they were, they've always been there, right? And it's just, you know, Trump gives them a little bit more, you know, exactly. Yeah. But again, they were doing it before he came. Well, if you look yeah. at American history, it's been wave after wave of uh, mm-hmm. immigrants and, you know, fascist reaction to the immigrants yeah. coming in. If you look at the history of the 1880s and the Haymarket Martyrs, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on, the trade yeah. union struggles. Now, are you involved in any type of more orthodox political activity? What's considered orthodox? Well, you know, you're kind of an activist. Are you, are you a free-range activist or are you kind of involved with other people? Oh. In, I... terms, in terms of people with, a, with the same, say, philosophical, ideological bent? Yeah, definitely. Well, tell us about it. Yeah, so I uh, am involved with the Freedom Socialist Party and also Radical Women. Mm. And I discovered both of those groups when I was in college. College was a good time because you learn a lot and you find and you're looking and stuff. I was fortunate to find them when I was in college. So Mm. I felt like, you know, 
people spend a lot of time looking for things. I was fortunate that I found what fit for me. And when I say fit, what was important to me in particular was bringing together all parts of myself. So I didn't want to join an Asian American group to deal with the race issue. I didn't want to join a queer group to deal with, you know, the sexuality. I didn't want to have to also join a, a woman's group to deal with this. I didn't want to join, have to just join a union to deal, you know. So to be able to find an organization which um, talks about and brings together and fights for all those issues mm. was kind of a relief, mm. right? Because I'm like, now I have time to do things, yeah. watch television, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so so when, did, uh, when did that begin? In about 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Yeah, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary last year. Right. All right, look, this is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Dale Bridge is doing all the important work, which allows us two old people to, you know, <laughs> chew the fat. Do you use that phrase in America, chew the fat? Yeah, we do. We do. Well, there we are. We've got something in common. And I'm uh, talking to, not interviewing, we don't do interviews on Radical Australia. I'm talking to Nancy Cato, K-A-T-O. So you join the Freedom Socialist, is it a party? Or is it it's cool? a party, yes. Freedom Socialist Party, what, 50 years ago? No, not that no. long ago. How long ago? Probably 35. 35, so they've been in existence for 15 years. 50 years, yeah. No, about 15 before, before, you, jo- before you joined. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I joined in yeah. about 82 or something. So, so what, do you, you have to sacrifice a lamb or do you write a piece of, how do you join? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there may be a rock. <laughs> no. The ritual? I can't, I can't tell the ritual. No. <laughs> no, you just have to agree with, you know, you're, yeah. we have a, you know, some a pamphlet that, you know, right. we ask people to read and right. we ask them to, you know, work with mm. us so they get an idea of what we're doing. So, so what's, what's the essence of the Freedom Socialist Party? You spent 35 years working with them. Build a revolution. Build a revolution. Yeah, right. to lead a revolution. To lead a revolution. But first we have to build it so we can lead it. Right. I mean. so, so it is a revolutionary party. It is, yes. Right. It's feminist. That's the other thing. Right. It's anti-racist. It's mm-hmm. pro, you know, uh, lesbian and gay. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's pro-working class. It's right. class conscious. It's anti-capitalist. It's right. internationalist. Internationalist? Yes. Yeah, I know there's people here. There are, my yeah, goodness, yeah. Yeah, and we've actually interviewed them. Well, spoken to them on the phone. <laughs> we don't do interviews. <laughs> no, we speak to people. Well, if I did an interview, I'd ask you some hard questions, but I'm not doing interviews. <laughs> I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of Radical Australia is to show people that radicals come from all no. walks of life, yeah. and we just want to... Yeah. And what, what was happening in this country is we got a lot of really active people who were growing very old mm-hmm. and nobody really knew their stories. Yes. And they had and they had a profound impact on the type of society we have today and they made a lot of sacrifices. So this program was a, a brainchild of mine because I'm going old now, about four or five years ago, that I wanted to bring people in, talk to them, see where they came from, what they did, what they achieved. So... You're still a member of the Freedom Socialist Party? Yes. All right. Any highlights in the last 35 years? Oh, plenty. Uh, well, we've got another half hour. Keep oh, going. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you also for your brain, you know, uh, you know, child of, of interviewing people and, and 
how important it is for us to know our histories and also know that we come from this legacy right. of people who have fought. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that I'm benefiting from, even you're benefiting from, is, is people That's did, right. you right. know. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah. you know, what we're doing also, other people, not just in the future, but, you know, today are benefiting from. And and the whole idea of, you know, you guys, too, here, Dale and you, in terms of, you know, being... Um, representing different generations, I think, also says a lot about the importance of multi-generational, sure. yeah. because we do see, unfortunately, right, this, you know, young people do this, and, you know, the rest of us are older people do this, and mm. not seeing the integration, and I think we lose something mm. on, on both ends and all ends when we're yeah. not able to bridge that gap, because it's really what we do as a continuum. It's not a you know, right. we don't want to see the gaps because then we miss out and people have to repeat, right. you know, the yeah. errors that we It is made. a continuum. You're, you're quite right. I mean, the great irony about living in this country is everybody says we're fortunate. Mm-hmm. They say we're fortunate. They don't understand why we're fortunate. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the all the activists that have gone beforehand. If Some of them have paid a horrific price mm-hmm. for their activism. And, you know, when people get overtime and they get holiday pay and leave loading and uh, access to health care, to Medicare, a subsidised pharmaceutical benefits scheme, the ability to, to you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to articulate their ideas without being carted away. I mean, this has happened because, as you said, it's happened because of this continuum, this generation after generation has been fighting for mm-hmm. that freedom. And in this country, we, we ignore them. Mm-hmm. We don't even honour them. We don't even mention them. Like uh, on the 1st of May, you'll find this ridiculous in, mm. in Victoria, we don't even, even have a public holiday for the 1st of May, mm. which other states have. We had a gathering at the 8-hour memorial on um, Monday on the 1st of May. Yes, I was there. You were there, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people just don't understand their history. It mm-hmm. is so sad, and especially in this country where you've, where you've got your Indigenous history, which is just brushed aside. Right, yeah. You know? So... You're right. You know, we really need... It's not a matter of kind of being obsequious and honouring. Right. But it's actually remembering them and paying them the homage that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of people who've died mm-hmm. who've been very active. You know, I'm in my late 60s now, or nearly late 60s, and who've done a lot of things, and nobody even knows their name. Yeah. Not even a footnote in history. Yeah. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. I think we'll cry together, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll celebrate. We'll, 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 we'll raise a, a glass. We'll raise a glass yeah. to them all. Yeah. So what are you doing today? Not today, but I mean, I what, are, what, what are you interested in? I am interested in building the Freedom Socialist Party right? and building the movements where right now there's so much, I mean... You know, every most people in the United States are just like freaked out about Donald Trump. Mm. But Donald Trump is, you know, he's a sort of a manifestation of things that have been going on. So they're getting scared as well they should, right? I mean, mm. you know, every day, you know, you're reading the paper and there's some executive order that, you know, is like so like really? 
you know, and crazy, like, and that people, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, that's what, that's what he wants to do. That's what the capitalists want is to shock and awe. So we're like stunned that we feel, you know, immobilized. Mm. But the exciting thing is, is that people, you know, we kind of got over our shock, but it's like now people are organizing, mm. you know, lots of people who, you know, didn't have to organize, didn't feel they needed to, um, they're organizing in their own little, you know, little towns. It's mm. not like they all have to come to the big city because that used to be the thing, right? Oh, we have yeah. to go to San Francisco. And- for the million, million man march. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah. now people are like organizing in their little, which is great. Mm. And people are taking all these, you know, creative mm. initiatives. Mm. So that's really important. But what needs to be done is to say, okay, that's people are going to burn out in two seconds flat. You know, they just don't have the capacity to keep organizing little things. You know, I mm. get these emails once a day, which I appreciate, and it says five things you can do today. But right. you get that every day, yeah. and it's sort of like it becomes 20 things you can do yeah. in a yeah. week or whatever, mm. five mm. times. So, mm. anyway. <laughs> so, but what we're, what we're doing now is, to, you know, having those conversations and discussions with people and saying, okay, this is great what you're doing. And they know that it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's talk about, okay, what, what can we be doing that's more sustainable? So part of it is, okay, talking about capitalism, which, frankly, most people in America know the system doesn't work. They just mm-hmm. don't know what to do about it. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. So, But saying, okay, here are some possibilities. Here's what we say. Mm-hmm. Here's what we are purporting to say and, 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 and organizing for. Right? So it's not just you know revolution today, right. but really yeah. saying – What kinds of demands can we put on the system where we can build a broader movement that is going to be more radical because that's what people need? Mm -hmm. Because obviously the Freedom Socialist Party isn't sectarian. I've seen a lot of little sectarian groups. So how is it structured? Well, we have elected leadership um, on a national level and, and a local level. The membership is the highest decision-making body, so we make decisions at national conventions. We well, also you send delegates to the conventions. Yeah, most of them actually, um, they're pretty much anybody who's a member can go. Right. So they have a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, and, and you said it's international. So what? The same process happens in Australia. With the yeah. Freedom so they. Party? Yeah. So. Yeah. There are international section because of U.S. laws about having international parties, but mm-hmm. they have an important role no. and do play an important role, and we obviously collaborate and mm. consult. Um, so yeah, so members are encouraged and uh, to bring proposals, you know, to and of course we're democratic centralists, so right. yes, we, you know. Leadership makes decisions. Um, membership votes on decisions. Membership brings ideas and proposals. And, um, you know, the checks and balances is that, one, is because we elect a leadership, we trust that leadership is going to carry out. Right. And if they don't, mm-hmm. we always evaluate. So it's like, okay, Nancy, mm-hmm. you're the, mm-hmm. you know, assistant organizer. You blew it. That was a stupid idea. And it's like... Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it was. It didn't work, you know. And so what are we going to do to correct it, right? But there should should be a trust there, right? Um, Conversely, too, um, 
you know, the members are, are um, like I say, they get to critique, they get to evaluate. We all do the evaluation and we make the corrections, mm. right? Because mm. we're, we're going to become obsolete if we don't evaluate and critique ourselves mm. and also what's going on in the movements as well and what is our relationship, right, mm. to, to what's needed now because it's changing so quickly, right? What we can say, you know, people were sort of interested and hot and angry about last week has changed yeah. you know do you hold any uh, positions in the party yes i am on the um national committee of the freedom socialist party which is the um the national leadership right um, and how many elected. people would be on that committee uh enough to right okay <laughs> so do you do you meet obviously and all meet in the same town well, we actually do we do get make it a point to get together, together. yeah oh, and you know at least oh. i think we're saying yearly yeah, sometimes yeah. maybe a little more frequently yeah i assume you're here to look at the koalas and the uh i, I did already kangaroos you've I done did. all that, already done that yeah, yeah. can you talk about why you're here i am here to learn more about you know different parts of the world mm -hmm. particularly about australia um what i'm learning actually is you know what it is to be american in the sense that because we're very ethnocentric in the united states and even though i'm an internationalist i am formed and you know uh, molded because of yeah. the country i live in mm -hmm. And it's been very inspiring, eye-opening, you know, it's just um, to, to just hear and talk to other people. You know, the fact that, you know, socialism is not a bad word, that people don't look at you and have these preconceived, mm. I mean, I'm sure they do, but, you know, it's like more of a normal, I you, say, know, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, the aboriginal struggle here is like, it's a struggle, mm. but people are talking about it. Right. And they're at least recognized. Maybe they're not solving the problem, but at least there's a, a consciousness that there is a problem. Mm. Right. And that something needs to be done about it and that people are going about in the best ways that perhaps they know to to at least keep so it. You, don't, you don't have that with the uh, American. Uh, we do. Native just, American movement. Yeah. We do, obviously, because of Standing Rock and, you mm. know, but yeah. as as a general rule. No, I mean, it's. Everybody has their own struggles, mm. and we have a tendency to sort of, um, because we're populated by so many um, NGOs, where oh, everybody yeah. gets a piece, just, and it could be, okay, mm. you're doing immigrant rights, but you do this little part for Asian immigrants, and you do this part yeah. for... Oh, don't talk to me about NGOs. Yeah. I'm involved in the coordinator for the, uh, convener for the uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing, yeah. and it's been... The word public housing has now been removed from the lexicon. It's all about uh, social housing, social. affordable housing, community housing, which are all run by private organisations exactly, yeah. which set their own rules. And it's a yeah. big struggle here in Melbourne at the mm -hmm. minute, in the whole of Australia. So have you been to other parts of the world? Yes, I've been to Cuba. I've been to Japan. Mm -hmm. I've been to England. Mm -hmm. What was it like going back to Japan? Had you... I realized I was American. <laughs> what made, what because because of your size or because that's true. It yeah, is. It that's is, isn't part it? of it. Yeah, yeah it it's is. like I'm not little. No, that's exactly. You know, <laughs> I'm not a little girl. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not petite. You're not petite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we got something in common. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was. Yeah. I mean, I think that was really 
it. But then on some level, you understand, you know, you understand a part of yourself as yeah, well, yeah. you know, sort of that deep down sort of cultural lineage, but obviously not having grown, grown up in it. But yeah. there's a sensibility. There is a Japanese sensibility that, you know, was has been passed yeah. down. Did you have any family that you you contacted or was that no connection? Or? There was. It's interesting. So my father had like distant cousins mm that he had already seen before because he's been had been a few times and so it was my first time i said oh, aren't we going to go see the family and he's like no i'm like <laughs> and he's like a really family he was a family guy so yeah. i was like very <laughs> shocked he says no he says what they do is they take the day off they travel i mean they make i mean they go really out of their way because it's family yeah. Yeah. and he says i don't that's not fair to them i'm like okay that's fine i mean yeah. you know we don't yeah. talk about them anyway but it was just yeah. you know while Something we were there yeah, that's but interesting. so it's like yeah, yeah so it's recognizing well, you, you make a point i remember when i went to um, my partner and i went to japan the first time in 1981 we were guests of the um, japanese anarchist federation and we wanted to travel ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. We wanted to get away from them. <laughs> <laughs> this is very Japanese. I don't know if it's the same now. So we, we disappeared for about two weeks and just did our mm-hmm. thing, you know. But they gave us a postcard to post every day back to headquarters to make sure we were all right. <laughs> That's, you know, yeah, like exactly. your father said, you know, exactly. they'll take the day off, they do exactly, all that, and yeah. they look after you. Were you there on Freedom Socialist business? Or? Uh, no, it was more family, but right. I went and visited, like, you know, the different... Uh-huh. I tried to find feminist groups. There's uh-huh. actually a Trotskyist library, which I never found, but right. it's, like, listed on yeah. a webpage, yeah. and I had emailed yeah. them ahead of time. And- well, the smallest anarchist library is at the foot of Mount Fuji. <laughs> <laughs> we actually stay there for a day or two. Mm-hmm. But getting back to... Um, you know, your travels. What was Cuba like? What year did you go? Oh. Just roughly. I know I'm thinking. 97. 97. What was it like? It was pretty amazing. I think I would be, I think it actually might be a little hard for me to go back now because mm. I think, you know, I get a little sort of romanticizes and whatnot. But we went on a, um, Radical Women had organized an international feminist brigade to Cuba, which was actually done um, with the Federation of Cuban Women. And so it gave it a really, um, we ended up having a solidarity conference with the, the, um, Federation of Cuban Women where Cubans, Cuban women and us got together and we talked, I think we came up with a resolution about, you know, trying to end the, um, the embargo. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, that's when I knew I was a revolutionary. I mean, I knew it already. Yeah, but, you but, know, yeah, you, yeah. you bring, you know, again, sort yeah, of nice. different places you go to sort of make you reflect on the different parts of yourself. So, yeah, it was... It was... Why? Why did you think you're a revolutionary? I mean, I, you felt it maybe internally before, but you actually felt it practically when you went there. Why? Because they were revolutionaries. I think any time you get together with other revolutionaries, mm. and maybe even particularly from other countries, there's this... Um, the synergy that is like you speak the same language. Oh, you do. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that that sense of familiarity, the sense mm. of struggle, the mm. sense of mm. um, not exact, but certainly shared kinds of of beliefs, lifestyles, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I remember when we were in, um, again, tend to be a bit of a bludger here with the guests of the Korean anarchist movement. <laughs> this is in 
I think 94, 95, they had a big conference. They brought anarchists across from all over the world, and then I couldn't make it for some reason. And uh, I came two years later with my partner. We went to Korea. We were just, you know, meeting people. It was just, mm-hmm. just extraordinary. But one of the most extraordinary things I remember was this 93-year-old anarchist from Korea jumped on a table. These are men who'd been involved in the struggle against the Japanese mm-hmm. during the colonial yeah, yeah. period. Jumped on this table in this cafe and started singing... Italian revolutionary songs <laughs> in the middle of Seoul. And that's yeah. that's what I'm sure it's exactly. not something he ever did, yeah. but because there are other people exactly, there and yeah. then he got on with it. It's that, it's that feeling. Exactly. It's that yeah. feeling, yeah. you know, you get that feeling. Yeah, I that's, that's what people get when they have a football team. Who knows? I know. Slightly different, but yes, we can kind of. Well, yeah. it's kind of same emotion. It's, it's the same emotion. Shift. It's an emotional yeah, exactly, thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you hope to achieve in Australia? Um. I think to let people know what's happening Mm -hmm. in the United States and it's not to, you know, to, to give everybody a sense of, of optimism, not a fake optimism or, you know, but to say people are resisting and that we're part of, you know, an international struggle against capitalism and, you know, the American working class is, you know, finally getting off its button and, and starting to do things mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, mm-hmm. our role in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think because of all the um, threats, not just domestically, but internationally, that, you know, it's people are more interested and more concerned about international issues because they know, you know, well, if he's screwing, if Trump is screwing us at home, mm. you know, and, and the people abroad have always, you know, mm. you know, before Trump, you know, are, are being screwed that we are beginning to see that we have, you know, um, mm. common interests. Has mm. um, the Freedom Socialist Party in Australia organized any public events for you? Any speaking engagements? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, right. Out comes the leaflet. That's right. I'm well prepared. So This is a Dorothy Dixon. <laughs> thank you very much for that uh, segue. I appreciate that. Uh, so, yes, we'll be, uh, I'll be speaking at an uh, event, Living and Resisting in Trump's America. Mm-hmm. So that's on Saturday, May 6th at 4 p.m. That's this Saturday. It is. Uh-huh. I will be there at... Uh, 580 Sydney Street, oh. or Sydney Road, excuse me, in Brunswick. Starts oh, the Solidarity at Salon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And do people have to book? Or? I don't believe so. You can just come. Right. We are having food, a delicious. The comrades here are, like, wonderful cooks. Well, they live in Brunswick. What do you expect? <laughs> I mean, it's the heartland of the hipsters. <laughs> yes. You know, well, you know. they're good cooks. They, like, they like to think of themselves the independent uh, <laughs> community, you know, was it collective or revolutionary, whatever, Brunswick? We don't believe that because we we're in Fitzroy. So <laughs> that, that's that's 4 p.m. Yeah, so this Saturday. I'm right. also speaking at a campaign against racism and fascism event mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. Fighting the Right in the Age of Trump. So I'll be one of uh, three speakers, I think. And mm-hmm. that's on Tuesday, the 9th of May at Trades Hall at 6.30. Mm-hmm. I'm also speaking you're at... In your, you're in your bickies. <laughs> really, they're keeping me busy. I love it. Yeah. I'm speaking at... I just got confirmed at as a May Day speaker on... Sunday the 7th. Sunday the 7th. So yeah, one of the speakers, yes. Yeah, so it'll be after the march, most likely, isn't it? Yes. After so. the march, yeah. Oh, excellent. So that, that'll keep you busy. And then, of course, my favorite thing right now I'm doing. 
This what, is talking, a highlight. Talking. This, is, this is one of the many highlights. No, I'm going to take Flattery this Flattery will get you everywhere. It, well, no, but it's I don't flatter for flattery's sake. Yeah. I flatter because I um, yeah. appreciate, respect, and, mm. and uh, recognize, mm. you know, the mm. important, you know, how important getting the word out, getting viewpoints out, and letting people decide for themselves, mm. right? Because if we don't give people the breadth and depth of choices, mm. then they end up taking the two choices or, you know, choosing between one of two or three things. Yeah. But this way we're, to me, that's what education is, right? You give people information. Mm. You let them figure out. Mm. And, you know. Well, in the dying moments of this little chat, it's not a fireside chat, just a chat. Uh, have you got any hopes for the future? Yeah, I'm really optimistic about the future. I'm hopeful that we as a class internationally will make uh you know the revolution happen because one we need to and two i believe that you know when you're backed into a corner the only way out is to fight and we're pretty much getting backed into a corner so everything i have seen in my years of of you know being a revolutionary points to the fact that people don't give up they fight and that's that's where we're at so mm. i i think it's it is. It's 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 hard times, but again, people want to fight and they want to make the world a better place. And everything's coming together where it's like, okay, you do have to choose. And I think people are making the right choices. Thank you, Nancy Cato, K-A-T-O, if you want to look her up on the net or the World Wide Web or whatever. Thank you very much for coming to the studio. Thanking, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with uh, our listeners, and we hope... All the best for you and the Freedom Socialist Party in the future. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem rose Everybody Screen, but there were so many people you just had to 